Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your word and show us what you'd have us to see from this. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 27, starting at verse 1. And Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when you pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up great stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write upon them all the words of this law when you are passed over, that you may go in unto the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land that flows with milk and honey, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. Therefore it shall be when you are gone over Jordan that you shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and you shall build an altar unto the Lord your God, an altar of stone that you shall not lift up any iron tool upon them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of whole stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings thereunto the Lord your God, and you shall offer peace offerings, and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write upon the stones all the words of the law very plainly. So we're going to look at this because this whole book has been about the second giving of the law. That's what it literally means, Deuteronomy, second giving for, of the law. And we've talked about this. Moses is giving a very long sermon to the people just before he's going to go. He's going to be taken away and they're going to enter the promised land. And he's reiterating the law to them that was given to them 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. And then their, their parents or the kids that he's adults that he's talking to rebelled by not going into the promised land. They wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses is re-giving the law. And that's why it seems this book seems so familiar when we go back through Exodus and Leviticus because it is a retelling. And we are relearning it just a, two, two years after we covered it. They, they're hearing it 40 years after they've been given. So he says, Moses and the elders gather the people together and say, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be in that day when you pass over Jordan into the land of the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up great stones and plaster them with plaster. So they're making, basically they're making a big memorial. They're taking stones and then putting plaster, making smooth sides, and they're making a memorial. Why are they going to make this memorial? Well, in Joshua it says that, that when you're we're making this pile of, <laughs> pile of stones so that when your children see this memorial and ask, what is it there for? Have you ever taken your kids to some very historical place or do you remember going to a historical place and asking what was this what was this what what about this what about that it's an amazing thing not so much here on the west coast but on the east coast when you get to see some of the things that the founding fathers laid out and built there's scripture in almost everything there's god's word in everything that's out there the Congress and the Supreme Court have the Ten Commandments on the walls in stone. Uh, there's pictures of Moses. There's pictures of, of all these different biblical scenes. Why? Because our founding fathers wanted everybody to remember our country was built on God's principles. Here God's telling the people, I want you to put this big memorial up and it's going to be that when your children see that and ask, hey dad, what is that over there? Do we have things in our life that we do in our families that point to God? 
activities we do, history that we have in our family that we say, this is when God did this. This is when God did this. This is when God showed up and did this. Do we have Bible verses around our house? Do we have pictures of Bible stories? Are there things that make people look and say, what it does this mean? This is all about what we're supposed to be as Christians. We live a life that should make people ask, why are you different? What, what makes you so calm during these hectic times? What makes you peaceful during these hard times? Why do you, why do you go to church every Sunday and Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, however often you go? Why is there peace in your house? How come the, we're never hearing these arguments that we hear from other people? You know, whatever it might be, is there something that draws people to say, what's different? Well, isn't there like a large percentage of people like, I don't think that they pay as much attention. Some do, I'm sure, but there's probably a large percentage that doesn't pay that much attention to. I think you would be surprised at how many people are actually watching your life. Mm -hmm. I think you will be surprised because people who don't have peace in their life are looking at people who seem to have peace in their life and they're trying to find out why. Okay, yes, they're wrapped up in their life. Are they paying attention to you every moment of every bit of your day? No. But when they're in a really bad place in their life, they're looking around and saying, who isn't and why? Because they're looking for answers. We are always looking for answers when we don't have them. The person who's into drugs and alcohol and, and all the different varieties of sin that are out there are looking for some momentary peace in their life because they don't know God. And they, they, I guarantee, they may not say anything to you, but they're looking at your life. And I've had many people come to me and going, how come you can keep a smile on your face when everything's going wrong? How can you stay peaceful when, when, when all this stuff is going on? Because they're looking. And they want to hear something that's real. They want to see that your life is different. Now, if you're living a life that does not show peace in the rough times and does not show God's love, they're going to look at you and say, oh no, that person doesn't have anything I want. And they'll go looking for somebody else. But the one thing, there's, an old, there's a number of old songs that they all talk about how you start doing something wrong and then you feel your child's hand reaching out to you and they're watching you. Okay, the world is watching us if we're living Christ's way. They want to know why are we different? How can we be at peace? How can we love these people that don't love us? How can we be forgiving? Because they can't be forgiving because they don't understand it. They can't love because they don't understand love. This is something that is very critical. Most of the Christian movies that are based on restoring marriages have this basic theme in them. You cannot love your spouse until you know what love is in the first place. And this is the problem that we have as humans. If we don't know God, we don't know his love, we truly can't love somebody the way he wants them loved. We can have an infatuation for them, we can like them, we can be kind to them, but to truly love somebody is something that comes from God. And that, I mean, truly love them. When they do everything wrong and they're making you want to climb the walls and the only way you can love them is for God love to be pouring out of you. So I would say people are looking. People are looking for what's different. They're looking for why. Now again, if you're not living a life that demonstrates the love of God and the peace of God, they're going to look at you and say, no, nope, that person doesn't have what I want, and they're going to look for somebody else. 
So are they looking at every single person who names the name of Christ all the time? No, because they're looking at them and saying, no, this person doesn't live up to it. This person, though, lives up to, the, to God's name most of the time. I want to know. I want to know what's different about them. Why? How can they do that? The reason I ask you that is because it seems to me, and, and, it's, and it's, it may have more to do with me than them, that the people that are always around me or you know, like I don't spend a great team around, around people, but the people that do seem to be around me, they're, they don't seem to, they're just, they're just you know, i got to do this today, i got to do that today. But what are you showing? The question we've come down to, what are you showing them? Are you showing them something that they want? And I'm not judging you, I'm just saying, yeah. if you're living a life that has peace and joy and God's love showing out and they see that you're different from what most people are like, they're going to watch you. And they're going to ask. If you're living up to it, they're going to ask. And this is why Jesus said we are to live, we are to live a life that's godly and, and righteous and draw people to him. But we also have to open our mouth once in a while and, and share the gospel. And it can be as simple as when people get into my car, they're going to hear Christian music or preaching, one or the other, in my car. Because that's what plays in my car. Period. And if they don't like it, that's not my problem. It's their problem. They can't get out because you're driving. Yeah, well, <laughs> if they really want out, I'm going to let them out. But I mean, but they're going to hear what I listen to. They're going to, they're going to live according to the rules that I have in, in my realm. When I was working in the restaurants, I... You know, restaurant management is a very high-stress job, and I would go through these rushes, and there would be a smile on my face. Granted, sometimes I'd have to go in the back room to get supplies and sing a quick scripture song and refocus my mind or, or whatnot, but I would always focus back on God and come back with the smile on my face and calmness in my, in my demeanor, and people noticed that. And they would start, and every once in a while, somebody would come up and go, how? How can you do that? So, yes, people are watching you, and you'd be surprised how many people are watching us. Because what's the biggest excuse we hear from, people, from the lost world to not become Christian? Well, most of these Christians are just hypocrites. How do they know that? They're watching us. They're watching the Christian, people who say they're, they're Christians who snap out at them and, all the time and taking their head off and, and aren't showing forgiveness. Isn't that like a, uh, it's kind of a, miscon- a misconception they have of there's no Christians are perfect. So they, don't, they don't really see that side of it, right? No, no Christian is perfect, but by the same token, Christians use that as an excuse to, to say yeah, this is, you know, Christians use that way too much as an excuse. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But if Christ is living in us and out of us, they know the difference. They know the difference between somebody who's honestly trying to live making mistakes and somebody who's saying one thing and going out and living a whole other lifestyle. And this is what they look at, and believe me, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who name the name of Christ that do that. And what they do is they put a hat on. On Sunday morning, they're a Christian. On Monday morning, I'm this, law, I'm a, I'm this businessman who does anything, everything it takes to climb to the top. Uh, I get home, and I'm the family man, and that doesn't necessarily mean I'm a Christian, but I'm going to try to spend time with my family, and, and so on and so on. And you never, as, whatever hat you're wearing is what you are at that moment, and never do the hats cross over. A Christian should be a Christian 24-7, seven days a week. And if you're a Christian at the workplace and they watch you and they go, wow, you go on break on time and you go off break on time. You go to lunch on time and you come back from lunch on time. When you're working, you are working. And we all know what it is. I remember it was a shock to me when I was not a manager and I worked in my first place that I was a in a large company as an employee and I'm watching, I go on break and there's people on break when I, when I go on break. 
and I'm going back from my break, and they're still on break, and I don't know when they go back. You know, I, I leave for lunch, and these guys are already away from their desks, and I come back, they're not back from their break, you know, their, their lunch, and they come back sometime later, okay? As Christians, we should be the best employee out there. We should be keeping the rules, working hard, giving people what they pay us to do. Now, I know there are all kinds of the world activity. Well, they don't pay me enough. That's beside the point. You agreed to work for a certain pay. You work for that pay. So, but when they see somebody living that kind of lifestyle, they're going, there's something different about this person. Mm -hmm. And then they want to go, why? And you can tell them, I'm working, I'm working as to God. I'm not working to please men. I'm working because God is watching me. I'm working to please God and not men. I am working to be honest. I am working to keep my vows to my, to my spouse. I'm not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize that vow. I'm, I'm going to stay and, and please God. Whatever it might be, people are looking at that and saying, that person is somebody who's living what they say. Now, you know and we know we all fail, we all make mistakes, but you know the lost world understands that. They know the difference between somebody who's making a mistake and just living a different life, you know, living like everybody else, saying one thing and living like everybody else. And it's critical that we have that kind of lifestyle that's different, that stands out. You know, when we are in a Christian marriage and we've made a commitment to stay together, one thing I love about in Christian churches is you meet so many couples that have been around for, together for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And it's a blessing to see that because they're living according to what God says on their lifestyle. And I know people make mistakes and things happen, but you know, are we living the way God says? I tell everybody when I, when, I, when I talk to them and they go, well, how long have you been married? Well, we're in our third decade. Well, that's, that's a long time. I go, no, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. I don't usually say we're newlyweds anymore because it's been long enough we're probably not newlyweds, but we're just getting started. And when I was in the 20, when we were married for 20-some years, I'm going, no, we're just newlyweds. We're just, we're just starting. You go, you got to look at the people I'm looking at. I'm looking at these people with 50, 60-year marriages. I'm, we're just babies at this stuff. Yeah, but you know, do you see the difference in that mindset? You know, the world's going to go, and it really bothers me. It's, it's, I understand the world saying, oh, you've been married for a long time. But when Christians say, oh, you've been married for a long time, that bothers me because they're, that tells me that they're not following God's standard. God's standard is to get married and stay married. And that should be our mindset. Oh, wonderful. You're doing a good job following God's commands. So again, how do we live? Is it something that is truly who we are? and we make a mistake once in a while, or is it something that we say one thing and do another? And that's where hypocrisy really comes into people's, in people's minds. They can understand us failing because they know, as a matter of fact, it probably makes them happy to a degree when a Christian has a falling down once in a while because it's okay, I don't have to be perfect to be a Christian, but I do want what they have. And that's something that is not, go, don't go on and sin on purpose or make mistakes on purpose because we're gonna make them anyway. But it also, when the world looks at it and says, how does that person react when they fall? That can be a great part of the testimony. When you make a mistake and you make a sin and you just confess to God and you tell people you are sorry for the bad witness you were and they look at you as if you're totally crazy because you are humble before them and admitting that you're human, that has great impact on them. Now, if you're just going out and doing wrong and, and sinning just like they are, they're going to look at that too and say, well, you're just a hypocrite. You say one thing and do another. So yes, 
We, they know we're going to fail, but there's a difference between failing and purposing to do wrong. And this is why, as Christians, we're to follow God to the, as best we can and let his spirit lead. And people will know the difference. They will know the difference. But anyway, back to these stones that they're setting up, the monument, he says that you're to put plaster on it in verse 3. You shall write upon them all the words of this law when you are crossed over that you may go into the land your God has given you, the land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord your Father has promised you. All right, so we have the law of God written on the Ten Commandments in the slab. And where's the Ten Commandments at? The Ark of the in the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> yes, the, the, ten, the original Ten Commandments, or the second Ten Commandments is in the Ark of the Covenant. And they said, when you get into the land, you're going to make this big monument, and you're going to write on it the commandments. They're going to be very public. They're going to be someplace where they can be seen. And it says, here's where you're going to put it. You're going to put it on your, on your laws. How have many people taken that? They've taken it to the place of the Ten Commandments go on the walls of their houses. The Jews did a lot of that. Ten Commandments on the, on the walls to their houses because they wanted to put God's word in their forefront to their mind. For years, many American families would have the Ten Commandments on the wall. The schools used to have the Ten Commandments on, this, on the walls. Heaven help you to have the rules of good behavior on the walls of your school where you want kids to behave. So, uh, but they're not allowed to do that anymore because of bad decisions. <laughs> but God says you're going to write these and you're going to put them where people can see them. If you see them, you read them. If you read them, you start meditating on them. This is the whole purpose of God's word. We meditate on his word day and night. We concentrate. What is me meditate? It's, it's not like Eastern mysticism where you say the same words all the time. Um, you know, and sit there and concentrate on nothing. It is to, in God's perspective, it is to the exact opposite. You fully concentrate on his words and mold them over and think about them and rehearse them to yourself over and over again and think about what it means. This is one of the reasons we say read your Bible in the morning. Find a verse or two in that, in that reading and say, I'm going to be thinking about these for the day. One of the things when you, when you study to teach, it's quite amazing. You study a portion of scripture all week long, and by the time you get done at the end of the week, you've kind of memorized it at least for that week. And you start teaching it, and you're, you're not even hardly reading it because you've thought about it so much that it literally has been drilled into your head, and it becomes out in a, in a format of being memorized. And stays there for a long time, especially if you keep mulling it over once in a while. How do you remember these things? When we go through these memory verses, we think about them. We recite them. We think. We think about all the implications of it. And God's saying, put my law on this big monument so that I will be lifted up before you. Because you're entering into the land God promised. Verse 34, uh, verse 4, excuse me. I was reading, reading the therefore. Therefore it shall be when you have gone over Jordan that you shall set up these stones as I command you this day in Mount Ebal and you shall plaster them with plaster. So the question is, what the heck is Mount Ebal? And we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 11 and read what Mount Ebal is. Because God told them to do something in there. And we're going to start at verse 26. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, 
a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord your God hath brought you into the land, whither you go you to possess it, you shall put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and a curse upon Mount Ebal. And these are mountains on opposite sides of Israel. And so he says there's a blessing and a curse. And, it's to be, and it was a symbol of, here's your choice. You're going to choose a blessing or a curse. And the mountain themselves weren't really cursed, but he says this is what God's saying. When you look to Mount Gerizim, it's a blessing. You see the blessing. When you look to Mount Ebal, you're looking at God's curse. And he says, this is what I want you to remember. In verse 30 says, Are they not on the other side of the Jordan by the way where the sun goes down in the land of the Canaanites that dwell in the, in the campaign over against Gilgal with, on the plains of Mereth? And so he says, remember, these mountains are some larger hills. There can be seen almost everywhere in Egypt, uh, Egypt, yeah, in Israel. And it says, there's blessing and curse. Choose you this day what you're going to choose. And that still is what goes in front of us today. Are you going to choose God's blessing by obedience? Or are you going to choose his curse through disobedience? And that's consequences. We have consequences for our actions. Our actions don't make God love us more or love us less, but the consequences for our actions do exist. And it's called sowing and reaping. When you sow good seed, you generally reap good. When you sow bad seed, you generally reap bad. And this is the way life is. God just put it in place. It's a law of life. You treat people right, and some people say you treat people right and it comes back to you. Sow good seed, you get good usually. Is it an absolute 100% law? No, it doesn't always work, but it generally works. If you're kind to people, then you're, they'll be kind to you. It is a rule that you're taught in customer service. If you go up to somebody and go, yeah, what do you want? <laughs> you know, you're going to get a bunch of snide comments back to you. You go up and say, hey, how are you doing today? What can I do for you? And you're friendly and you mean it. Even if they start angry at you, they usually will soften down in their attitude towards you. If you meet them back with their attitude, then it escalates. It's a way that the law of the reaping and sowing works. Well, that's generally what we're supposed to do as a Christian. We are to do well in spite of what it may seem to be coming to us. And you'll note that I love to use the word seems to come toward us. When bad things come our way, or what we seem to think are bad things, God has a blessing in store for us, or a lesson he's trying to teach us. We need to change the way we look at things and say, God, what is it that you're trying to, to teach me, correct me, or grow me? One of those three things is always happening in everything that comes into our life. And I mean everything, whether we think it's good or we think it's bad. And the Jews have a saying, the Chinese have a saying, basically it's a parable that goes, you know, this farmer goes out into his farm and his, and his barn bill burns down. They go, oh, that's terrible. He goes, no, no, because what happened was, you know, and they give you something good because of that. And they go, oh, that was a really good thing. No, because that led to this really bad thing. You know, that was really bad. Well, no, because that, that led, you know, uh, to this thing that was really good. You know, how do we deal with it? It's all depending on how we look at it. If we are coming to say God is in control, if we truly believe God's in control, nothing 
bad is happening to us because he's got a plan. Okay? It goes to the statement we gave many years ago now, God's will is what I would choose if I knew everything. Okay? No matter how bad it seems in my life, at this moment, if I knew everything that was going to, everything that was happening around me and everything that was going to happen, I would understand why it's not a bad thing in my life. And how many times in your lifetime have you gone through something that you would have, that when you were going through it, you said was a terrible thing, not even just a bad thing. It was terrible. And you get enough distance down the road from it and you go, oh, okay, I see some good that's coming out of this. If you don't see it in this life, you will see it in heaven where God shows you this is what the good that came from it. This is the good that will come from it or did come from it. Because again, we don't know all the people that are watching us. We have no clue what's going to happen. And I've told you, one of my songs I really love is the song Thank You, and it's a song where he says, uh, you know, we I, I went with this pastor to heaven, and he goes, I was there with you, and all of a sudden these people are coming up and just saying thank you for all the little things he did and things that he never even realized that he had done. And one guy goes, you know, that you went to see a missionary and you gave a little bit of money and this is why I'm in heaven today is because of the money you gave. You know, you, you did this cup of water and I got blessed by it. You know, we don't know what people are seeing and what's going to touch people's lives. You know, sometimes we get a little taste of what it is, but I think it's just a small taste. When we get to heaven and God shows us are the little things that we did, do you realize most of the time when you're just living life, just living life in a godly lifestyle, people are being touched. I can't tell you how many times in my life people have come up and going, you did this, and I was just being myself. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even trying to be a Christian at that time. I was just being myself. You did this, and it really encouraged me, and now I'm doing something else. We never know what little things we're doing that are going to touch people's lives. And this is why Jesus said, in the last day, he'll say, say to them, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we do these things? When you did it to the least of them. You're not even thinking, most of the time, it's, we're not even thinking about serving God. We're just doing life. Huh? Yeah. We're just doing life, and people are being touched. And this is where, that's when it's really special. When you're trying to serve God, there's really no reward in that because you're trying to earn the reward. You're trying to do something and God's saying, you got your reward. You, you got recognized. Those times when we're just wandering with God and he's ministering to us and ministering through us. And it just takes these little things. He says, you're going, I command you this day on Mount Ebal that you shall put the plaster. So he's going, you're going to put a monument on Mount Ebal where the cursing is. Where the curses are, they look to the curses and they see the law and say, we can get out of this if we just be obedient, if we follow his commands. Verse 5 says, And there you shall build an altar of the Lord your God, an altar of stone that you shall not lift up any tool, iron tool upon. God's altars. When you look at the, the scriptures, the law on his altars were no shaping of the stones for the altar. They were to not be shaped. They were to be natural. Nothing man made was to go into the offering of God. It was only a stack of stones. And this is to keep man out of it. Look what a nice altar we built you, God, that we're offering your sacrifices on. 
No, God said, no, you just stack a bunch of stones together and build this altar. And this is something that God is very much into. When we are in the service of God, he does not want man being involved because man is sinful. So the sacrifice is all about God, handled by the Levites who were called by God to be his on, stone, on a stone altar that was built up with stones that had not been touched and, and, and broken and smoothed so that it was all God's work. Why? Because the sacrifice is all God's work. Jesus was offered by the Father. Willingly he offered himself and the Father said, yes, will I take that? It was all done from God as a gift to us. Nothing that we did. Matter of fact, we don't deserve it at all. We don't deserve any part of the sacrifice of Jesus and the building up of him toward us. And it says, you shall offer peace offerings and eat thereof and rejoice with, before the Lord your God. What was the peace offering? Does anybody remember anything about the peace offering? From when we were studying way back in Leviticus? The one pastor defined it as a party with God. You brought in your gift and you said, here's my gift. The priest got part of it, God got part of it, and you got part of it that had to be eaten. Okay? It was a gift to God. You didn't have to give it, but when you chose to give it, it had to be eaten within 24 hours. So you're given a big ox and half of it goes back to you. You have a big party to get rid of it. And basically celebrating God. God is good. God is so good to us, and we really have to understand He is good all the time. And we need to comprehend that and always keep that at the forefront of our mind. Even when it doesn't seem like He's good, I tell you what, He's still good. All right? Even when I don't think He's good, He's still good. Even when I don't like what He's putting me through, He's still good. Even when I think it's a bad thing that what He's doing for me, He's still good and has a good plan for me. No matter what I think about it, God's good. This is something that is very important. He's good. He's in control. Have you ever been in a situation where you think God's lost control, even momentarily? I've been there. I've been there. That's when I go to God. I go, God, I don't understand. It seems like you've lost total control and nothing's working for, working for good. But, but, you have made, but you have made, you have promised that it's for my good, so I'm going to hold on to that. You know, everything about my logic, everything about me says this is bad, it's terrible, I can't understand it, but you say it's for good. We always question that, you know, how can this be good? We can't always see that. The, question, the, the problem is, though, we need to quit questioning how it's good and just trust that it is. We don't see the forest for the trees. Well, that's part of the trees, the, even the trees for the forest, but we don't see what he's doing because we're so stuck in what's going on in our life. And what we need to really be able to understand is he is good all the time and he has a plan and nothing happens that he didn't know about or allow. If we can concentrate on those things, will we still have those troubles understanding? Absolutely, because we're still not going to understand what's going on because God is higher than we are. He's bigger than we are. He's smarter than we are. He knows more than we do. But if we can concentrate on those facts that he is good, he is in control, it's okay, God, I don't understand it. I don't need to understand it. You've promised it's for good. It's like me, like I say a thousand times, whenever anything like that happens, and God never asked us to understand everything that he does because we can't 
My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, as God says. You know, so we cannot, cannot understand everything he's doing in our life. We don't understand because we don't know what's going to happen 40 years from now, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, maybe 100 years. Maybe I'm going to do something small that affects somebody else who affects somebody else who makes it a big deal 100 years from now. You know, we don't know the long-term ramifications for what God's putting in our life and why. I think that would be good. It would be great, but the key for this is, is that we just say, God, I don't understand it, but you have promised it's for good. Maybe, maybe it's just that we were a bad example and people used it for not do something, you know, which turned out for good, not our good, but turned out for their good. You know, we don't know what it is that God's doing and we don't know why because we don't have the time frame that God has and we don't have the understanding that God has because God has an eternal perspective. He knows that what he does may affect somebody's eternity. And what if we just endure through a problem, somebody's watching us endure for the problem and never talk to us, but they get saved because of the problem that we endured. Was that problem worth going through if somebody gets saved? I think so. You know, what if multiple people get saved because of what I endured? Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of people who were martyred for God and their names are still being recognized and people are still getting saved because of their witness and they died hundreds and thousands of years ago. Was it a good thing that they died? Probably not to their families. <laughs> not, you know, to them, they went to heaven so it was good for them, but not to their families. They lost, they lost a loved one. But how about the people who get saved because of it? turn our perspective around and look at it from God's way and let God show us when in the future what, what he accomplished. He is good all the time. He allows nothing that's going to cause us, cause us the pain that, is, that he does not feel and he's got a reason for it. But what I don't understand a lot is when I was younger and I did a lot of things, I wasn't focusing on God because he's and I, I was very, very thinking of Isn't isn't God's grace wonderful? Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking like, God, you know, I just can't get over it. Like, all the things that I've, sometimes I think that, you know, all the things that I did, He knew, and I wasn't even thinking, you know. But a great part of that is for when we realize how much grace God has shown us, should motivate us to show a lot of grace toward other people. Unfortunately, the way most of us think is, God, I love you for your grace, but go get that person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they deserve it. They deserve to be attacked. They deserve punishment. Well, so did I. So did I. And we're very big on this idea of, God, give me grace, but go get them. Give them, give them justice. Yeah, we need to be very careful on that because God was gracious to us, and usually people are drawn by his grace. Because he's going to put people in their life that are going to convict them. He's going to put the Holy Spirit in their life that's going to convict them. They're going to realize that they did a lot of wrong things and be, and that sometimes will generate their decision to turn to God when they realize that they have gotten so much grace. They should have died so many, so many times. They should have been punished so many times. They should have been killed so many times because of the misdeeds. And God says, I've given you grace. 
turn your whole life over to me and, and see what I can do for you if you turned your life over to me. Look what I've done with you by my grace. How much more could I do if you turn your life over to me and we get to do it the right way? God's grace and his mercy is wonderful. And that's as we grow in Christ, we will do more thinking differently. We'll love people, we'll forgive people, we'll be gracious to people. Why? Because we start to realize how gracious and loving and forgiving God has been to us. And it's very important. We love him because he first loved us, is what 1 John tells us. We didn't love him because we chose to love him. We love him because he reached out and loved us. How did he reach down and love us? He became a man and lived on this world and died for our sins. That's quite a, quite a love. And then he offers that gift to us when we don't deserve it. You know, I don't ever want to hear tell God, I just want what I deserve, because if I got what I deserve, I'd be in hell. I would be dead. <laughs> you know, I'd be in hell if I got what I deserved. I want his grace, and I want to show his grace. And the more we realize the value of his grace, the more we're going to show his grace. And that's the most important thing. We are gracious one to another. We forgive one another. Why? Because he forgives us. Because he gives us grace. He loves us. When we truly get to know him, we start giving back what we've been giving. Because we just know how much we deserved the punishment. And when we start really seeing the person I want him to go get, that could have been me. Or should have been me. When I was misbehaving and, and doing the same things, he should have gotten after me. And he loved me and gave me grace so I should show this person love and grace. How many times do we not do that? David in the Psalms was famous for precatory prayers. God, go get them. <laughs> they deserve it. And is it possible that maybe those prayers are right sometimes? Maybe. But God is saying, I want you to love people because I love them. And usually in David's prayers, he, at Psalms, he finally gets around to the, to the loving part toward the end of the Psalms as we're finding out as we go through his Psalms. Most of them start out negative and ends up positive. You know, and we want to be able to say, God, you are so good. I, want you to just to, I just want you to love that person, God. Bless them. Make them know that they don't deserve what they're getting so that they, so that they might want to search after the one who's given it to them. Because, you know, one thing about the lost world that I have seen in, over the years is when they get blessed, it drives them up the wall because they don't understand, because they know they don't deserve it. And they're going, I just don't understand this. You know, I don't, this is not good. I, I'm, I'm getting lucky. I'm getting lucky, you'll hear them say. You know, luck is shining on me. No, God is shining on you and giving you one more chance to follow him, one more chance to look after him. And it says, you shall write these words, all these words of the law, very plainly. Make them clear. Make them understandable. We are, the, we are the law that people are going to read. It's been said that Christians, are, that Christians are the only epistle that some people will ever read. Because there's a number of people that will never read the Bible. Sometimes we're the only Bible those people are going to, to see. Do we show God in our day-to-day -day life? most of the time because <laughs> we're not going to be perfect it's been pointed out we're not going to be perfect but we should be a picture of God that they can look at and say okay it's a little little cloudy and a little foggy but I see I see something different there I see God shining through that that person and 
needs to be plain. And the more we follow God, the more we love him, the more plain that picture is going to be. We all have met somebody in our life that we go, now that's a Christian. Yeah. I know that that person's a Christian. I can see the, the love of God on them. I can feel God's presence. I know this is a Christian. The world sees it too. The, the world sees it as well. And there's only a handful of people that I've met that fit that description where you just say, no, I know that that person, that person really shines forth Christ. And that's a rarity, but it happens. Verse 9. Now let's go ahead and read it. And Moses and the priest and the Levite spoke unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day you are become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God and do his commandments, his statutes, which I command you this day. I love this. Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day you are become the people of the Lord your God. This day you have become his people. Obey him because you are his people. For most everybody in this room, as far as I know, each one of us have a point in our time where we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And at that point in time, we became his child. We became part of his family. And we need to be able to show that out, that I am a different family. This is the importance of a Christian. We are not part of this world. We are just passing through this world. We're pilgrims looking for another land. We should never feel at home in this world. It should always feel out of place. It's the, kind, it's the idea that for when you're traveling and you're staying in hotels for a period of time. Nothing feels better when you've been away from home, even if it's in somebody else's home. Nothing feels better when you've been away for a vacation for a week or two than to get home to your own home. This is my home. This is my furniture, my bed. This is where I can do what I want. In this world, we should never feel totally comfortable. This world should always be out of sync with us because this is not our home. The rules of this world do not apply to, are, are not our rules. The way that life is lived is not the way we, we should be living our life. We're looking for our home in heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to go, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. I've, I've made it. I'm home. No matter, what, no matter what your suite of rooms look like and how it's decorated from your rewards, you'll be home. And it'll feel good to be there where the Father is and where the Son is and the Holy Spirit is. And everybody else that is a Christian that's part of the family will be there. Those who have gone on before us will be there. Those that you didn't even know that have gone on before you will be there. And eventually, those that you don't know yet that are going to be there because of the example that you brought out in your family will be there. There's going to be a lot of people there. Very small percentage of the, of the whole population of the world, but there'll be a lot of people there. And that is our home. It says, this day have you become the people of God. We, that means that we're different. We should live differently. He's telling his people, you're going to live differently. And the Jews to this day still live differently because of their rules that they follow. Even those who aren't religious still follow a lot of God's rules just because that's how they were raised. Jews were considered lazy people because they took a, they took a one-day vacation every week. And a day when nobody took vacation, nobody took a day off. And they're going, oh, you guys are just lazy. You've got to, you, you sit for a full day and don't, and don't work? 
Yeah. You give God your, your money because he tells you to? You, you don't, you don't uh, eat certain kinds of food because your God told you to? Are there things in our life that are showing that people are, that we're different? When they look at us, do they see, oh, you don't do these things or you do these things? Why don't you do these things? Just this is what God tells me to do. Why do you go to church? Because God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. Why do you read your Bible? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Wherefore also a young man cleanses his way by taking heed to thy command. I wash my mind with his word. I change my thinking with his word. He is my guiding light. He is my refuge. He is the one I hide in. All the different things you can think of. And people look and say, well, how can you trust this God? You can't even see this God. How can you worship a God that you can't see? Oh, he's inside my life and I know he's alive. If you get to know him, you'd be, you'll, you'll, you'll understand. Do you want to get to know him? <laughs> you know, do we challenge people to get to know God once in a while? Many of us don't. We may even share the gospel. But you know, one of the most important things about sharing the gospel would you like to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life? You know, it's like a salesman who comes to your door and knocks on the door and has something that you've been wanting for weeks or years at just the price you're willing to pay and you have the money in the end and he gives you a sales pitch and then walks away from the door. <laughs> Never asks you to buy the thing. He just tells you all about it and walks away. We laugh about that, but you know most Christians do that with, with Jesus. We give the whole pitch. You, you're, you're a sinner, you deserve hell, Jesus died for your cross, you know, for your sins, and it's a free gift just to ask him to come to your heart and we walk away. And never ask, do you run to know him? Over and over I've seen Christians do that. Over and over I've done it on, over the years. We need to be careful. We've got somebody, if you get that opportunity to tell them the gospel, ask them. They might be surprised, they might say yes. They might say yes and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart. Then you've got the real job ahead of you, and that's to disciple them. Teach them how to walk with God. Get them in a church. Teach them how to read their Bible and pray. But we need to get to that point where we can say, do you want to know him? Do you want to know him? A lot of times they're going to say no, but you never know. Some say yes. I've been there, had that happen. Some say yes. Billy? Huh? Well, as, I, as I've said, the greatest thing, the thing people fear the most is somebody asking them a question that you don't know the answer to, and yet that's the best thing that can happen to you. Because your answer to that, when they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, that's a very good question. I never thought about that. Let me go find the answer to that, and I will meet with you again tomorrow, two days from now, a week from now, whatever is convenient for the two of you. And now you get to talk to them. Now you get to talk to them twice. But that is the thing we worry about the most. Every time I take an evangelism class, and I've been in an evangelism class, the question always comes up from at least one person, if not more. What if they ask a question you don't know that I can't answer? I'm be too, you know, I'll be ashamed of going. No, it's the best thing that can happen outside of them accepting Jesus Christ on the first visit. The best thing that can happen to you is them to ask you a question you don't know the answer to if you handle it correctly. 
that's a fantastic question. I don't know the answer. I want to go, I'm going to go find the answer. I'm going to go dig in the Bible or talk to my pastor or talk to my deacon or talk to my best friend that knows the Bible better than I do, and I'm going to get an answer for you. Can we talk again tomorrow, two days from now, whatever it might be? We're just afraid. We're afraid. I don't know enough. I don't, I'm not smart enough. Uh, how can God use me? You know, whatever, whatever it is in the back of our mind. But God says, open your mouth and he'll fill it. it will, we're intimidated. We're, we're scared. We're worried. Uh, nervous, whatever it might be. And God is saying, he told the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will fill your mouth. And you know how many times when I've been witnessing to somebody that all of a sudden I kind of start listening to what I'm saying because it's no longer me speaking and it's, I'm saying things I didn't even know that I said, uh, that I knew, quoting verses that I didn't even know that I knew sometimes and listening to the Holy Spirit using my voice, my voice box, my, my, my mouth and I'm kind of in the back saying, okay, go get them, Holy Spirit. How many times does that happen when I preach and teach is unbelievable too. Sometimes I'm just, I kick back in the back of my brain and it's God, God, I'm listening to my own self. I'm going, oh, wow, God, that's really good. You know, this is the way God works in our life. If he is the most important part of our life and we've been thinking about him, we've been reading the scripture, we've been studying, he will take over quite often and speak through us. When you're witnessing, oftentimes it'll be the Holy Spirit taking over and just ministering through you. And that's when you see wonderful things happen. And you're going, wow, this is, this is wonderful. I, I, I didn't know you were so good, God. And you're using my voice to do this. <laughs> and he does this over and over in our life. Uses our voice to witness to people because we're open to allow him to do it. All right, let's go ahead, and we're a little early, but we're going to go ahead and close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask for you, you to bless this day. Give us opportunities as we go about our daily life to just open our mouths and share and watch what you will do through us as we come across with people. And Lord, give us opportunities to be able to be the one that gets privileged to lead somebody to you and then to start discipling them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.